Hello and welcome to your weekly tech news hour. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor, I'm a podcaster, I'm a writer about technology, and this is a new show we have here on WRUW and going out to cyberspace at some point, I'm sure. Podcast form, maybe. Let's do that. We're going to be talking about uh, the week in technology news. Uh, we're going to have a fun time doing it. Just a casual conversation. Guests uh, will be along, just like my first guest. Uh, he's the one, the only, and officially by title, a geek, Leon Adato. Leon, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Not just a geek, but my actual title is head geek. I took the job just for the title alone. I completely respect that. You work uh, <laughs> You work for a company called SolarWinds, is that correct? correct? It's yeah. not solar or wind. It's a software vendor that makes uh, monitoring software based out of Austin, Texas. Very eclectic, uh, Austin, Texas. But uh, <laughs> I work from an undisclosed remote location code named My House in Cleveland. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and Leon and I have had some many conversations, I think, at this point. I think officially yes. we're at the many conversations point about technology, maybe a little bit more on the IT side uh, previously, but we're, this is a kind of a general technology news show. So I thought, let's just jump right in. One of the big stories that I thought this week that was super interesting was an op-ed in the New York Times by Facebook co-founder mm -hmm. Chris Hughes. Now, you may not be familiar with Chris Hughes. You know, you think Facebook founder, you think, uh, of course, Zuck, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, you think a hoodie. Maybe you think of what are they doing with my privacy? Maybe you think of a chain letter from your grandma. Uh, but where they where they tell you you have to send the status update so Facebook can't steal your information, and that's going to protect you because you posted. Right. Anyway, Chris Hughes uh, founded Facebook with uh, Mark Zuckerberg way back. Uh, if you read the piece, I highly recommend you read the piece. It's a really great uh, op-ed. There's pictures of them while they were at, uh, what is it, Harvard? They were at Harvard. Harvard yeah. yeah. Uh, on these great tiny little Sony Vio laptops, which I just absolutely adore that Facebook was developed on these comically tiny uh, Sony Vio laptops. Anyway, he was calling, I think we're, we're getting beside the point here, he was calling for the breakup of Facebook. Now, this isn't, yeah. he's not the first person to do it, but certainly someone who has maybe an emotional vested interest. He's yes. liquidated all of his financial interest with the company. Don't worry, he made bags and bags of cash. Uh, 2012, <laughs> I think, right around the time they IPO'd. He was he at least able to pay off his Harvard tuition. Yes, and that. able to buy, he bought a magazine now that I can't think of it, um, and then he sold it because he has no business running a magazine. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, his op-ed in New York Times calling for the breakup of Facebook, joining similar calls that we've heard uh, from some pol in the political arena, I think, uh, yeah. some of the Democratic nominees. Well, certainly so, since the uh, Zuckerberg uh, testified on Capitol Hill, I, mm -hmm. I think that there's been more awareness of it, and I think that some of their uh, security faux pas, which is which was the point at which I bailed on <laughs> Facebook. I said, okay, I'm done now, wrote a blog about it, you know, everything, because I'd had enough. But I think the weight here isn't just that somebody is asking for the breakup of Facebook. That's easy. We can say, I want the breakup of Ford. I want the breakup <laughs> of, you know, the electric company, whatever. I mean, like, it's an easy thing to say. It's that it was somebody who was there at the very beginning, somebody who is very clearly emotionally um, friendly, with the people involved. It's not just somebody who had, you know, their their pictures exposed or whatever now feels affronted on that way. So he's somebody who's been there from the beginning and says, "Yeah, no, mm -mm, it's time to <laughs> time to pull the plug on this one." Yeah, and he even starts at the op-ed kind of setting the stage, setting this very nice little play uh where you know, he's he's having dinner over at the Zuckerbergs in 2017, uh -huh. I believe. Um, and, he, and, you know, talking about, you know, we had this really cordial thing. We talked about, you know, old times and where the platform's going and stuff like that. And, you know, kind of in the wake of the Cambridge Analytical scandal, I guess, was kind of what started Mr. Hughes's uh, revelation yeah. that Facebook should be brought. And there were some really interesting points brought up in the, the op-ed. Now, I think if you follow uh, technology, if you follow the news, you know, you're not surprised to know this. But if, if you know, maybe you're just a more casual technology fan, maybe you just use Facebook. They have such a tremendous reach. Their earnings report were out uh, this week. I think they had 1.58 billion daily active users on Facebook proper, yeah. and then over 2 billion when it came to monthly active users, so people that use Facebook at least once a month. Um, that doesn't include necessarily Instagram. It right. doesn't include WhatsApp, WhatsApp, which are both, I believe, I, and Messenger, also as kind of a discrete platform. Now, Messenger gets a little messy because it is it is kind of part of Facebook. and They they're bringing make it... it Kind yeah, of message. You can't, <laughs> you can't message on your uh, mobile device unless you 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 know if you you can't message through Facebook unless you have Messenger. Which, yeah, and <sighs> stop it. Yeah, so I mean, you're and you're looking at social networks again. Facebook is a gorilla in and of itself, but Instagram uh -huh. is bigger than something like YouTube, or it's bigger. I mean, the orders of mag not orders of magnitude. 
but they're five times bigger than Twitter, which is already considered, you know, bigger than, five times bigger than Reddit. And it, right. basically all of their competitors combined, you add up these three platforms. And there was just a recent stat coming out that uh, all of these, you know, these Snapchat clones that they came out with, uh, all of those uh, WhatsApp stories, or I'm sorry, Instagram stories, Facebook stories, and WhatsApp status, which are all their ephemeral kind of Whatever messaging, they call all it. have 500 million daily active users each. Yeah. So they're already, again, bigger than Snapchat, bigger than all of these other platforms. So you're, you, you know, it, kind of calling out the that the scale of Facebook is unprecedented yes. in the Incomprehensible. world. Incomprehensible. <laughs> I would say inconceivable. It, um, I may not know what that word means. The... <laughs> So, yeah. I, so I guess the question that I have is, is, you know, some of the, the it was very interesting by Chris Hughes. He said that he didn't find that like the acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp, which I think in hindsight everyone's like, how did they do that? Uh-huh. Uh, he said, you know, he's, he kind of he didn't again. He's he's kind of cautious not to throw Mark Zuckerberg under the bus directly, at least for his past behavior. Not personally. Not personally. But he does call for the FTC to make him personally accountable for privacy on the platform going forward. I.e., he could be fined personally. As opposed to Facebook paying a $5 billion fine. But getting back to, uh, uh, so, you know, he says they weren't malicious when they acquired yeah. these companies. You know, they, these were these were acquisitions that made sense to them. And for a price of a billion dollars, you know, Instagram certainly, you know, was was certainly a bargain, right? Right. Um, but, you know, kind of going forward, uh, laying some blame on the FTC, sure, uh, saying, you know, why did you let, let this, these, ru- why did let this the, yeah. train run away quite this far, this and, fast? And they were yeah. under scrutiny from the FTC already from a 2011 privacy. You know, I mean, Facebook is literally in a continual privacy conundrum, whether they're either updating their status settings or they're, yeah. uh, you know, or, or they're you know getting called out in the press or something like that. So it's not too surprising um, to see. The running gag is yeah. that, you know, there's there's a fl- there's a privacy breach or something. Zuckerberg appears somewhere and says, you know, we, we can be better. We have to do better. And then, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah. And then, yeah, literally nothing happens after that. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really interesting. And then getting into that, you know, he he definitely calls for the constituent parts to kind of be broken up, which I think is very interesting because, you know, we we're seeing now simultaneous to this. You know, maybe this is a reaction to it. Maybe this is a cause of it. You know, maybe Zuckerberg knew this was coming from Chris Hughes. Facebook coming out and basically saying, we're a privacy platform now. You know, we're, privacy is the most, you know, the company that's for 10 years. I'm sorry. Or for if 15 you are, years, you stink at it. <laughs> for 15 years has been telling us, you know, we want to connect everybody on the planet. We, you know, we, everyone, you know, telling us that the old notions of privacy are outdated, outmoded. Uh, you right. know, you're living in the Stone Age. Um, now telling us that they're a privacy platform and Perhaps cynically, perhaps justifiably saying, you know, please come in and regulate us. Uh huh. This is a bigger theme, too. We've seen Microsoft come in and say, please regulate us. Now, Microsoft has a long history of being forced to be regulated. Y- yeah. But yeah. under the new Satchamania leadership, we are seeing a new Microsoft saying, hey, let's maybe, you know, and, and I think that's a part of a larger trend within technology of we know regulation is coming. Let's try and get ahead of it. Let's set the tone. Let's set the story. And definitely that's what Zuckerberg is doing here, but Leanna, what I wanted to ask you is, what did you? Th- I mean, outside of separating out, uh, you know, the Instagram, WhatsApp, yeah. Facebook kind of core and Messenger, maybe as you know, as submit, forcing those to be broken up, AT and T, uh, Ma Bell style. Sure. Um, what do you think of you know, kind of the rest of what Hughes is proposing, and what we've heard from others, you know, like Elizabeth Warren, who originally was one of the people that called for the breakup of these big tech companies. Right. We've now seen Kamala Harris, Harris kind of come right. in and and dip her toe in the water. I don't think she's quite as in the statements that I've read isn't quite as um, insistent on it as Elizabeth Warren is, but definitely uh, considering the notion. Right. You know what? What do we think is what? What is the goal? I guess of these breaks up is it just to make these smaller? Is it just to, you know, what what would be the, the purpose of a breakup like this? So, you know, I, I always steer clear from the financial and often from the political ramifications of it. I'm always looking at the technical and the overlap of technical to people process. So the first and foremost, and the last breach is the one that is the most laughable. Um, we we didn't realize that we were sending out a message asking people to put to send us their password. Oh yes. And then we accidentally placed that whole big file with passwords on a public share someplace. Like you don't 
that doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> like, you know, I accidentally, you know, hit the enter key and published a web page before it was done. That's accidental. But I accidentally placed a giant file full of people's passwords on a public share. That's that's not an accident. I think that Facebook has proven time and time again that they have no idea about I shouldn't say no idea. There are people within Facebook, but Facebook as as a company either doesn't understand or doesn't respect the concept of privacy, you know, keeping things private that they said they were going to keep private, and also can't keep track of all of their, can't keep their ducks in a row. They're so big and so spread out and so uh, diverse in terms of the projects that they're doing that a breakup would help them uh, you know, organize in a way that they don't have a technician. Joe from, you know, accounting <laughs> accidentally bought a, you know, Amazon share, you know, S3 share and put this file in there. Who knew? <laughs> okay. Well, then the problem is uh, why did Joe have the corporate credit card, et cetera? So my first and foremost, breaking them up would make them um, better organized to avoid these oopsies. Mm -hmm. And also I think ha be able to have more, uh, uncomfortable conversations internally. One of the things that the New York Times op-ed article said was that he doesn't think that, you know, Zuckerberg's a bad guy, but he's surrounded himself with people who just aren't providing a moral compass. Mm -hmm. Well, smaller organization, you're more likely to have people who are less yes person-y, yes manny, and more uh, likely to say, yeah, this is a really crap idea. Maybe we should not do this. Well, and yeah. to to jump in on that, and part of that is a symptom of the way Facebook is structured. Uh, Zuckerberg being the founder controls 60% of uh -huh. voting shares. So essentially the board has no direct oversight necessarily. They're in a more, you know, they've been compared to an advisory council versus an overseer of Facebook. So everybody could vote against what Mark Zuckerberg wants to do, and their Facebook's still going to do exactly what Zuck wants to do. But there's, so again, you know, it, uh, that's wonderful, but I would never look to a board to stop a technical decision from, you know, a yeah. functional decision from mm -hmm. going through. I, I'm looking to the chief architect, the lead engineers. I'm looking to the same kind of thing we read about in Startup Nation once upon a time where the engineers from Israel took their own flight over and just, you know, camped out in Andy Grove's office mm -hmm. at Intel and said, this is a bad idea. <laughs> Don't do this, right? Um, you know, people who are willing to do that kind of thing. And I think that Facebook is currently at such a size and scale that you can't get to his own, you can't do it. So that's the first thing I'd look for in a breakup. And the second thing I think is be more responsive to people. You know, people complain about the Facebook interface and then you hear, uh, people argue, well, what do you want for free? This is it. First of all, it's not free. And again, the op-ed article said you're paying in, you know, by attention and you're paying in terms of your personal information. And those are very, very expensive. But I think that people have lost sight of that. And wh what about the whole data portability aspect of this, right? Where the, the idea, and, and I, have, I have more mixed feelings about this, right? Because uh -huh. I completely understand not w wanting to keep all the connections that I have on Facebook, right? I mean, it really does serve as you know the reason a lot of people do it is you need it for if you want to run an event uh -huh. and you're not on facebook your event like gets a tenth of the exposure that you would right it's the easiest way to just you know create promote that kind of stuff a lot yes. of people for work have you know work related facebook pages so guilty I, I, i'm the exact same way i have to manage a couple facebook pages uh -huh. as part of my job so i really i like i can't just shut down get off facebook right so the idea i of, use my daughter's account <laughs> so sorry the, honey so the idea of uh, I believe that goes against Facebook's terms of service. Also, I'm not saying I'm going to report you. Well, one of the pages I'm managing is her bakery, so it's, it's <laughs> okay. you know it's a I'll symbiotic allow. relationship. I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. I think you're an equi <laughs> I think you might be an equity partner at that point. Ah, uh, so got it. the the idea of okay, you should be able to take these relationships and take it's your data, right? You know, kind of this GDPR mentality uh -huh. of uh, and that's the General Data Protection Regulation regulations from, from Europe. Europe, which came into effect May 25th last year. Go ahead. But anyway, so you, you know, being able to take your data and plug it into you know you know your open source network of choice, whether it's like a Mastodon or one of these other decentralized, um, not owned by anybody kind of spin your own right social networks, right? I, I, I again, I completely understand the why that's all would be awesome, right? Because Facebook is the thing that everybody uses, no one likes, mm -hmm. and being able to do that. But at the same time, I, I'm also hesitant to say, hey, let Facebook made this thing that's. <laughs> that everybody wants to use and is super addictive, you know, for good or ill, no one else did that, right? right? And you could say maybe their scale prevented them from doing that or something like that. But they did succeed in doing that. 
And I, I have a little bit of a problem of saying, okay, now we're going to it's, – it's one thing to break up into the silos that already existed, right? Uh-huh. It's an, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I have another thing. It's like you, you signed up for Facebook. You put your, your data in there to be able to – you know, it's one thing to be able to get all your data off. I want to download all my pictures, download all my status updates, yeah. and delete everything. That's great. But to be able to, like, to force a regulation to do that, I, I would need to see how that would work. So it's interesting because uh, John Constine at TechCrunch this morning mm-hmm. uh, posted an article, oh, sorry, last night, yesterday, posted an article on Facebook portability. That's actually the name of the article. And he talks about the idea of being able to migrate your profile to another platform, mm-hmm. which immediately reminded me of phone number portability. Ah. And it made me wonder, like, are we saying that our social media profile is as important to us as our phone number? And, you know... Okay, full disclosure, because you can't see me. I'm old. <laughs> really old. I, you know, so even the idea of, I must have this phone number. It's, it's, it's associated with me. My grandmother will never be able to call me again. <laughs> like, even that seems kind of funny, but okay, I can sort of get along, you know, I, I can get by with it. But the idea that our profile is something that is so personally identifiable that I should be able to port it to another platform, um... Which begs the question, which platform would you port it over to? Because, there, again, there's very little to compete, and I have some thoughts about that. But um, it, it's an interesting idea. I'm not saying I'm against it. Um, I'm not saying I'm completely laughing at it. It's just a, a very interesting sort of tasty idea. It has our social media profile and everything that goes along with it, not just the handle, mm-hmm. you know, the name of it, but also – the the data the bio the the history of it the message that had been sent at what level is that data facebook's in the same way that an email system doesn't have to port every email of yours over to you know you don't have yeah. to you know port all of your AOL emails over to Hotmail. Yes, I've just named two things that are completely defunct. I know that. <laughs> I did that on purpose. Um so, you know, like is it that important to us? And on some level I could say yes. So that does take us to where would you go? (laughs) And the problem, again, outlined in this article I thought was fascinating, was Facebook's policy, at least current business model, is uh, purchase or copy and, you know, and bury. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I think that really spells out part of the problem of scale. You know, everybody says, uh, uh, some people have criticized, you know, is Facebook a monopoly? Well, Nothing's stopping you. You know, they're not putting up a barrier that says you can't go to Snapchat. You can't go to Twitter. You can't go to Reddit. You can't start up. You can't run your weird little Mastodon collective. I love picking on Mastodon. <laughs> I, I, love, I love weird decentralized social networks. Uh, so Mastodon, rock on. I have a profile somewhere. It's at Mr. Anthropology. Find me on it. I won't see it because I don't log in. Um, but <laughs> yeah. the, part of the, the problem is that because they have 2 billion, let's just say 2 billion users, right, they can roll out their Snapchat clone. And it can be terrible. It can be the worst thing ever, and Snapchat can still be amazing, and they're still going to get 50 million people to use it when Snapchat has 20 million daily active users, and then all of a sudden it's irrelevant. We saw a little bit of that, I think, with the whole live video trend that happened a couple of years. You know, you you had Meerkat launching on Twitter. You had Twitter launching Periscope kind of at the same time, and then Facebook was like, oh, yeah, we do live now. We're just rolling it out. It's kind of broken. You can't, like, it, it has weird plugins that you have to use and doesn't really work with anything that you want to use it with. Right off the bat, right. But all of a sudden, oh, Facebook does live now. Um, it's just enough. It, like the strategy is just brute force. We have enough users that even if it's terrible, enough people will use it that they won't start using whatever the new hotness is. Right. And then that thing dies on the vine a slow death. Well, it's and the- I feel like Snapchat's in that is kind of in that death row. They they have a unique position because they're where the youths are, and that's not exactly Facebook's strength. Right. Outside of Instagram. Um, you know, they, they do have an age problem down, down the road. So Snapchat still, uh, is appealing, uh, to advertiser to a certain level, but you know, their, their daily active users are plateauing. Um, Facebook is still growing, you know, 2% or more daily actives. Um, and when it's billions of people, that's a lot of people. 2% is a lot of people. Well, we've seen this before, Mm -hmm. you know, Microsoft back in the day of, I'm again, I'm going to show my Netscape Navigator and everyone thought that. They were going to destroy Netscape, and they they did uh, because <laughs> they put out Internet Internet Explorer, which was horrible. And we actually have another yeah, we have a tech <laughs> article, you know, tech conversation about that today. But um, the idea that that Microsoft could bury an established 
you know, dominating presence simply by putting out a crappy second run simply because of their size. It's the difference between the person who wants to run for mayor and so literally stands on a soapbox and the person, another person who wants to run for mayor and owns the movie theater that everyone, (laughs) the one movie theater in town that everyone goes to. Mm -hmm. Old Man Potter. Who do you, yeah, yeah, who do you think is going to, you know, get the word out better? So, yes, Facebook can put out their, you know, garbagey Snapchat, and, and people are going to use it simply by virtue of the fact that they saw it. Yeah, it's, oh, it's the top of my feed. What's this? Right. Let me check that out. Now, you could say those people. How remarkable. Would, it's at would, the top of your feed. How did it get there? Now, some people say those are the people that are never going to log into Snapchat anyway, right? Mm-hmm. This is my mom that's going to be logging on here. And, oh, I like my ephemeral. My mom does not talk like that. Mom, I love you. Um, I was going to say, yeah, day later, really, man. Yeah. <laughs> but the... But then also at the same time, those are people then that aren't going to look for something more ephemeral. You know, it, it's kind of it, it's tough to quantify, but there's right. I, you, you can't argue that there is a massive effect with that. And then, the, you know, into the conversation of data portability, that kind of gets into um, what specifically what Kamala Harris said in her kind of recent statement about wanting to look at breaking up Facebook or looking at it as a monopoly or, or something along those lines uh, is that she was calling on it, looking at it to regulate it as a utility. Which, if it is a utility, like you're saying, like a, with a phone number, then there is, you know, a call for portability. I, again, I'm a little wary of saying this private company, or I, I mean, they're a public company, but this this enterprise that was made with investments or whatever that was not a government enterprise can be de facto kind of backdated into being, uh, a, a, you know, a you know, quote unquote, a public utility and with the the scrutiny and the the rules that would come along with that. You know, the the question then becomes: Is Facebook just so influential that it's for the benefit of society? That that gets into a really weird, hairy space, though, right? Yeah. Well, okay. So so trying to label social media as um, public utility is unfortunately laughable, and mm-hmm. I think that that's why the idea has never gotten any traction because yeah. it's not the phone company. Yeah. It's not. I mean, we have to break it up like we broke up the Baby Bell, you know, AT and T into Baby Bells and stuff like. No, no, that's not how it works. Also because. They are big by fiat. We just said that sitting in their dorm room at Harvard, they didn't think that, you know, am I hot or not or whatever it was originally, (laughs) you know, was going to grow into this, you know, global monolith um, or behemoth. However, it is analogous to Standard Oil. Mm -hmm. It is analogous to, you know, these large monopolistic companies that became very, you know, very good at what they did and grew very, very large. And I think that looking at how we – Regulated and controlled those organizations, those financial organizations um, that provided a, a meaningful, useful service or product, is uh, is a good way to frame Facebook and Amazon mm-hmm. and Google and you know and keep on going. Well, and and to the point of using you know the Ma Bell breakup uh, as a model, certainly that opened up a lot of innovation that you could do. Yeah. I mean, the Hushaphone case kind of did it, but whatever. No, not to get into crusty old patent history, uh-huh. but certainly opened up a lot of innovation, some competition. However, looking at it in 2019, the, all the baby bells that were broken up are now Verizon and AT&T. They all bought each other, SBC Global and Ameritech and all of these companies that you heard of and were branding baseball stadiums 15 years ago or 20 right. years ago are now just two big companies. And well, they are, but you you so also I, have the Sprint, and at least for the time being, so Sprint and T-Mobile and Google so you, Fi. And, so you have yeah. an oligopoly amongst the big cell carriers. You created yes. an oligopoly out of monopoly. I suppose that's better than anything. But I'm saying I don't I don't know if that was what people wanted, or the 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 vision was when they broke up Ma Bell initially. Although it's impossible to say given that how radically telecommunications transformed. Yeah, it was it was hard. I'm for just saying there are unintended side. You know, who knows what that looks like post breakup. And, you know, we, we've seen this uh, call for breakups on Elizabeth Warren's front, not just for Facebook, but looking at Amazon, you know, mm-hmm. with their Amazon Web Services, which runs like a, a third of the web or, you know, or, or even 40 percent of the web or something like that. And they're, you know, Amazon Prime and their music and their video. You know, they have a lot of different and their grocery books. stores exactly. and their yeah, exactly. pharmacy and their. Right. And then, you know, looking at Google, uh, breaking up ads, search, YouTube, again, which is another giant social network. Mm-hmm. Um, that has, you know, has been identified as problematic for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what's interesting is I haven't heard any call to break up Microsoft, which is, I think, the funniest thing. Yes, in all been of- there, done that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's- we tried. You have a browser ballot in Europe. Okay. Right. Yeah. It, you know, okay. So, so first of all, Sacha is just such a nice guy. And I say this as somebody who 
started using Windows when it came on 12 five and a quarter inch floppies mm-hmm. uh, for free when you bought a copy of Excel <laughs> 1.0. Um, and I have a long and well-earned um, distaste of Microsoft. And I, I have to say that Satya and everything that he's doing has sort of won me back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I no longer have the, the rabid uh, frustration with them. But uh, so I think that the the calls for breakup of Microsoft aren't necessary anymore because they responded. And this was another thing that uh, came out in the op-ed article is that even if a breakup isn't successful, even if they find that the breakup isn't necessary, the act of investigation, true investigation, not just Zuckerberg nervously drinking water on Capitol Hill <laughs> and feeding a bunch of memes, but real investigation, really looking at their practices, um, could have a positive effect in and of itself in the same way that it helped Microsoft to eventually get to a much healthier, better place. Well, I think we are going to have to leave it there. We've spent half the show now talking about Facebook. I enjoyed that, though. I hope you did, too. Um, I don't have any mechanism for sending feedback, but if you have some thoughts, I guess I'm going to be on Twitter, at Mr. Anthropology, MR Anthropology. That's a social network that's way smaller than Facebook, as we've established. Um, Speaking of companies that everybody uses and no one likes, Uber recently filed... (laughs) For their IPO, uh, this has been talked about as you know the the biggest IPO since I don't know uh, Alibaba or Facebook itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone I think a year ago was expecting this probably north of a hundred billion dollar valuation, that kind of stuff. Uh, Uber is kind of the unicorn of unicorns of tech startups. <sighs> If we want to use buzzword bingo, okay, fine. you know, they're software-defined okay. uh, driver platform. Isn't that the unicorn is the center square on the, b- on the bingo sheet, right? Yes. We're going to have yes. to do that for the next show. It's publish <laughs> the tech buzzword bingo sheet so that the you can play The weekly tech news hour buzzword bingo. We'll, you'll hit it every – we'll fill up the whole square. Uh-huh. It'll, it'll be, we'll it's be a clean be happy, sweep. Yeah. But they filed for their IPO. Uh, originally, I think they had set a range of between like $52 and $42 or something like that. They, uh-huh. they ended up getting the low end of that, $45 per share. The IPO, I, I won't say tanked, but orig, orig, um, initial returns were not great. Uh, I think it's sitting below 40. It's definitely below their initial offer price. Okay. These happen. This happened to Facebook. Guess what? Facebook's fine. It happens to lots of companies. And, and I will say this as somebody who, uh, you know, I hate talking about money. Yes. I really do. Mm-hmm. So, but it's, you know, trying to correlate the way that the business or the stock operates to the technical usefulness of the of the thing is impossible. Otherwise, we'd be running Betamax, not VHS. Oh, my gosh, we don't run either one anymore. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and we can't look to whatever porn chooses to decide it because that's not relevant for ride sharing. So right. the <laughs> the but, but Walking I, away now. But I think what is interesting about um, the, the IPO is not necessarily, okay, so they made less billions of dollars than they, you know, the investors made less billions than they thought the billions that they would make would make billions. Right. Who cares? Today. Rich people, today. Are, rich people are less rich today than they thought they should have been. What I do think that is indicative, though, yeah. is looking at the S-1 filing, looking at uh, how they are as a business model, right? Because the technology works. If you've ever used an Uber, I would say the experience is fine. I mean, maybe you have one guy that's talking on the phone or, you know, maybe you've had a bad individual driving okay. experience. But the, the, the act of matching a rider to a, someone who wants to provide a ride and taking you to that place Works better than I think if you when whenever I first heard heard of Uber I don't know like the early 2010s um, works better than I ever would have thought. Oh, many of us, myself included, many of our our minds went to very dark places yeah. about how. They, what are you talking about? You're going to get in a car with a stranger? That's exactly what Mom <laughs> said not to do. You know. So and that was that was the gag. That was the punchline that everybody said. Like, who thinks this is supposed to work? So yes, I think that the the technology works. But again, looking at that techno- technology people process. Um, the cracks in the foundation are showing. There have been extremely bad experiences oh, absolutely. that have happened. You know, are those normal? And we've just haven't seen them occur as much as frequently. Is that are those edge cases? Can they be technologied out of the system? Possibly, possibly not. Um, I think at a deeper level, though. The question is whether the gig economy itself yeah, absolutely. is really going to is really an effective system to build upon. I think that's really the problem. Whether or not you can keep track of cars or bicycles or scooters, and you can keep track of who wants a car or bicycle or scooter and where they're going and all that, I, you know, yes, we can. We've we've 
finish that thought process, we can do that math. Yay us. <laughs> Um, you know, yay AI or machine learning or, you know, whatever it is, group computing. We did it. But the question is whether um, it's an effective way to deliver the service that you're trying to deliver. And can you do it in a way that doesn't honestly hurt, you mm-hmm. know, people? Yeah. And then can you make money at it? And this is why I don't run a business myself <laughs> is because that's the last part that I ever consider. Well, and it seems to be the last part that Uber is considering because, like, if you – again, if you look at their financials, every single year they've hemorrhaged more money. Now, again, not unusual in startup culture, right? Uh-huh. Uh, you, you usually see that with big companies like this that are doing rapid expansions. But we've also seen them pull back from places. They pulled back from China. They pulled back really from the Asian market in general, which they haven't seemed to be able to figure out. I think uh, Didi Chushing is really taking off, um, especially in China and certainly in and right. surrounding markets and that kind of stuff. Which is also not strange for any business, whether yes. you're talking about steel or whatever. Like having a hard time being successful in the Asian market is a common refrain for American companies. In the Asia, I think is really important. The, the Asia. The Asia. Okay, yeah. Fine, fine. Um, so. The, but we've also now seen Lyft similarly face some scrutiny about their business model. Mm-hmm. You know, Lyft, or, uh, Both of these companies now have spent other people's money and have to figure out how to make their own money. And it only gets more difficult, I feel like, for them as a, you know, as a business. You know, originally, rates for drivers were subsidized. So people were getting paid more, which got more drivers on the road, which made it easier to find a, road if you, or find a ride if you were looking for one. So now you're either facing paying your drivers less, which means you have less drivers on the road, uh-huh. Uh, a criticism of the gig economy right there. Right. Or, you know, there's been calls to unionize. We just saw a massive protest of Uber and Lyft drivers on the day of Uber's IPO, kind of you know symbolically right. protesting the, the biggest of the big ride sharers. Which, by the way, crushed Lyft's IPO, which was a week or, or yeah. so earlier yeah. and was just not doing well. And I think that also had an effect on Uber's IPO price was was that look at what what Lyft is doing. Uh Oh, we better readjust our expectations and and start low, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than start high and and make it look even worse than it's supposed to. Yeah. So, you know, technically, again, figured it out. How do you keep incentivizing people to drive and want to drive? And then the other angle is there was just recently a study that came out last week Uh uh, looking at uh, traffic. I think it was uh, from 2012 to 2016 or 2017, something like that. A pretty wide uh, swath of area in uh, the Bay Area looking at the effect of ride sharing on traffic and basically saying for every mile that you go with ride sharing, you're adding 2.6 or 2.2 cars to the roadways, right? So that's like right. really bad if you're already in a, you know, the, the whole idea of this ride sharing stuff, I, I would think is okay, one of the ideas, one of, one of yeah, the ideas, yeah, yeah. certainly it's convenience, but the other thing is I don't want to have to sit behind the wheel of a car. I want someone to drive me somewhere and taxis are horrible and, Right. This seems like the opposite of what we are hearing, you know, the, the need for better public transportation. They need to infrastructure our cities around, you know, right. not having individual drivers. This seems to, like, take car culture, take away the cool stuff, which is owning the car. Right. And then and then just give you all of the, the congestion and that kind of stuff, too. Right. And this takes us to the Jeff Goldblum, the obligatory Jeff Goldblum quote. You know, you were so busy trying to figure out if <laughs> yeah. you could that you didn't think about whether you should or not. Yeah. So the, my question is, you know— is this kind of, in a way, another de- – are all these transportation ride-sharing startups, whether you're talking about Uber or Lyft, or you're talking about the scooter startups like uh, Bird or uh, whatever the other big one is. I forget what they're called. I think they're all out loud. Uh, I just made that up. <laughs> so you have to think of – it's like S-Q-Y-C. Right, no vowels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we, you know, we're seeing them those now banned in cities because they're causing all this clutter. Are the transportation ride-sharing startups – another kind of dot-com bubble where, yes, Amazon survived the dot-com bubble. Uber probably is going to survive if this is a, a big bubble. Yeah. It's probably going to survive because they are di- diversifying. They're getting into automated driving. They're getting into, we'll deliver you stuff, we'll deliver you food, we'll deliver you packages. Right. Not just being a pure ride-sharing company. But is this fundamentally not sustainable? I mean, like the, yeah. technolo- the technology, there was, oh, I'm trying to remember what the name of the startup was, but it was like a bike messenger service that would like deliver you a sandwich in New York City during the dot-com bubble. And it, you paid like $2 for the delivery. And it made no sense financially. On a technological level, they figured out all the problems. It worked great. Right. Just like there was no way to scale that beyond just being a constant loss leader. Is that what all these transportation startups are? And once again, I, I would say if I was going to draw a bubble around something, I'd draw a bubble around the gig economy. Okay. That's where I would draw it. So it's not ride sharing or, or delivery specifically, delivery of people, delivery of service, delivery of, of stuff. I think that – uh, it's whether or not you can build a sustainable 
meaningful model of a business on you know random people randomly doing stuff for you at random times <laughs> of the day you know when they feel like it and mm-hmm. then not doing it other times or do we really need employees yeah that's that's what i would say again for my non-business so background. if you're a youtube creator that makes videos as you drive for uber while you deliver postmates deliveries you might want to rethink at least part of that at least part of <laughs> what you're doing and the least of us is distracted driving and you know not running into things but but yes i would say that so outside of kind of these bigger regulatory or financial uh, kind of decisions we last week there were a couple of big shows uh, uh-huh. that were happening in the technological space we had of course microsoft build which is a little bit more of a dorkier uh kind of <laughs> i don't know like microsoft build like i love Microsoft Build and what are their other ones? Um, Ignite. Ignite. Yeah, I, I love all of those because it's real dorky and I learn about plugins and APIs and weird Azure services that I'm never going to use but like are really cool. Yes. And I get to write about them for work too. Uh, but the, uh, the 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 other one that happened was Google I/O, which is a little bit more consumer focused. It's ostensibly a developer conference. All of these are ostensibly developer conferences. Same thing with Apple's WWDC. Yes, but there are definitely consumer-facing things going on, and and at Google I/O they announced um, a whole bunch of interesting stuff. There was kind of uh, the death of Nest uh, uh-huh. occurred by rebranding it and taking it into Google. There was uh, there were the people that made those smart uh, thermostats a couple of years ago that were all the rage and looked really cool. Um, there was you know a whole bunch of announcements around Google Assistant, which I think is interesting. Uh, but the one of the, the big thing that stood out to me was what was going on with the Google Pixel 3a. It's a new phone uh-huh. they released. Yes. Uh, devices. We're talking products now. Talking products. And <laughs> that's a theme song I've had in my head for six months. I'm not going to lie. Very good. Okay, good. And uh, it was worth it. I'm glad I deployed it there. No, no regrets? No, no regrets at all. Uh, nailed it. Uh, a little pitchy. Anyway, the so this is a device. Uh, if you're not familiar, Google doesn't just make Android. They don't just make search. They make some devices. They've made the Pixel phone. This is kind of the, they're in their third generation, I guess, of flagship. You know, this is the flagship as Google intends mm-hmm. uh, kind of phone to compete against, you know, what Samsung's doing. And, and basically that's, and Motorola, I guess, is the other big, uh, and Huawei. And okay. Huawei. Yeah, and, I, I'm and, thinking and, in the U.S. And, yeah, I'm thinking in the U.S. Anyway. Okay. So. LG. This has been pr- a pretty niche device. It's, it's usually, the devices have been usually well regarded. Uh-huh. But. Uh, previously, they've all been locked into being Verizon exclusives. They've been relatively, they've been competitive with other flagship products, but I think you know, uh, all, just south of a thousand dollars. Right. They're, and, and I'll clarify that they're they're exclusive to a carrier, but also to Google Fi. Yes. Oh, yes. So yes, that's I it. mean, in, in the, and technically, you can buy it unlocked, but you know. Whatever. Right. But you know, a lot of people were considering it as they were considering the Google Fi service, and then they didn't want it or whatever, and then they were looking for the carrier that would have it and stuff like that. But that's those are minor points. So yeah. So yeah. So this what, what's interesting about the three A is that this is kind of an off cycle. You know, the Pixel three already exists. It, mm-hmm. it still exists. It's still being sold. But this is on every single is being offered through every single carrier. So that's already a win for Google. Yes. But it, it provides it provides an interesting model because up until this point, if you wanted to make a "Quote unquote budget phone." If you can consider something that costs four hundred dollars yeah. a yeah. budget, whatever. Um, the, the traditional model is okay. We're going to skimp on the screen. We're going to skimp on the camera. Maybe skimp on the battery, but we're going to put the latest processor and a ton of RAM into it. And you'll be able to run Fortnite at whatever frames you want to. It won't look all that great. The user experience might not be. You know, you, you get all the benchmarks. That's yeah. great. Um, you'll never be not be able to have things perform on your phone well, but. You know, you're you're going to be making some sacrifices when you're taking pictures of your pets or your kids. They're going to the photos right. are going to be blurry if they're not in pure perfect light. This is kind of Google saying we're going to do the complete opposite. We're going to put in a mid-range processor you'd find maybe on a, a 200 or 300, you know, on, on an even cheaper phone. Um, we're not going to really make it a super huge battery. The screen's going to be fine, good screen. It's going to be a, a OLED uh, screen, which are cool. I will talk about OLED panels for so long. I love OLED. I'm an <laughs> OLED lover. Um, and then, but the big thing is that they're putting in the camera from the Google, the Pixel 3 and, you know. The high-end camera. The high-end camera. This yeah. is this is considered, I, I think, by a lot of people, the best of the best. Right up Currently, there with, right. like, the Huawei P30, which you can't even buy in the U.S. Right. Um, and so, the, it has this crazy, like, night sight mode. You can take pictures in basically pitch black, and it makes them usable. They're not, like, they're a little noisy, but it's way more usable. You don't have to turn on a flash. Right. Um, it gets all of the day one updates from Google, you know, so you're, right. you're never going to be waiting six months to a year for the latest version of Android. You're, you get a certain level, I think of, I would think a, a certain level of assurance that, you know, your security is going to be always up to date. 
Um, it, it's going to perform at a reasonable rate because it's from Google, even though they have right. a weird firewall between their OEMs and their developers, whatever. Um, what do we think about this? Is is this the model to go after for for the, you know this kind of mid range? And is and is this a signal that you know maybe people are getting as as increasingly phones are seemingly more expensive, right? We're looking at, you know, Samsung just released a, <laughs> tried to release, very tr hard tried to release, a $2,000 foldable phone. Right. Which is, I would say, is too much money for me. Maybe other people are better off and they want a product that will break. But <laughs> I don't know. Ooh. But, but even even looking, even looking at, you know, the, the Galaxy S10 or the iPhone yeah. XS. Yeah, the, 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 XS, real, the real the Samsung release. XS, yeah. Oh, why did they name it that? iPhone XS Max. Whatever, uh, those are all you know thousand dollar phones basically. Yes. Right? Is this is this Google saying okay we figured out how to make a good mid range phone or is it we see an opening where people are fatigued with having to finance a phone? I mean like that's the thing now when you go to buy a phone you're not just choosing what phone you want you're like all right what do I want to lease this do I want to buy this on a payment plan uh -huh. can I do I skip the mortgage this month and and put, right. buy this and phone, buy the phone you know? right. I mean, or the car payment or yeah, whatever exactly, yeah exactly yeah. So I, my, my opinion, nice, I, what? My car's not that nice. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, 2009 Ford right here. So, you know, okay. Um, so anyway, uh, the, I feel that these three stories are deeply connected. <laughs> the, the Galaxy Fold, the Pixel 3a, and then also the Galaxy S10 yeah. are all connected in some very interesting ways. Um, just talking about the 3a, you, you know, from all the reviews and and my own sort of investigation into it for my personal reasons, I think it's spot on. It is a great phone. Not the best phone ever, mm -hmm. but it's a really good phone. And they did flip the normal equation on its head because I think there's a realization in the market, which is that good enough is, hey, look at that, good <laughs> enough. And I don't mean like good enough is suck it up, buttercup, you're going to have to deal with, you know, you know, crap because, you know, you're poor or whatever. I think that in the same way that when people look at their larger, their keyboard-connected compute devices, mm -hmm. whether you've got what my kids affectionately call the grandpa box, uh, the actual desktop computer with, you know, four screens and stuff like that, or a laptop, nobody really, okay, nobody except me, really says that the laptop has to have an eight-core, you know, 16 or 32 gig with a separate GPU processor. You know, most people are like, yeah, I, I need to do my paper uh, in my, in my term I, need, paper, I need a web browser. I, need, I literally just need a web browser. A, a web browser. Um, Maybe you know, Photoshop. You know, like and that. which you can get through a web browser. Yeah. I'm going to be using LibreOffice, not Microsoft Office, because, again, I can't afford it or whatever. But people have decided that their their uh, laptop for you know laptop-type device, good enough is good enough. Four, right now, 4 gig of RAM, maybe 8, mm -hmm. you know, a certain level of processor, and it's going to do what it needs to do. The the bottleneck is the bandwidth. The bottleneck is no longer the processor. And I think phones have hit that. Yeah, you know, last year's uh, CPU, good enough. <laughs> you know, last year's screen resolution, good enough. Netflix is going to look just fine. And nobody's eyesight is that good that they yeah. would notice the problem. If you know, Yeah, between your 4K display and a, your 1080 that right, you're holding. Very you know. few people, you know, very few people who who don't care about the price, or who, sorry, very few people who care about the price are going to care about the screen output at the same time. So so good enough is good enough, and we just have to make those other pieces. The, mm -hmm. you know, battery life is actually just fine. But the camera, the thing that we use our phones for a lot, needs to be top end. So let's, let's go look at that. And by the way, those are cheaper components when you get down to it to build it. Yeah. So there's that. Then you look at the Galaxy Fold. <laughs> And you realize that you could buy five three A's for the price of one Galaxy Fold, and you wonder why. And some duct tape, and then you can just. Make and a fold. right, and then there you go. You yeah. can have you know, five. I'm not even sure how that would it'd be like a weird Rubik's cube kind <laughs> it of. It would be uh, a, a four dimensional cube. I right, think. it would yeah. be like that box out of uh, Hellboy. Yes, yes, it'd be like that one. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, you could get. And, and what you're paying for with the Fold is two phones, two top-end phones that are sandwiched together with a little bit of, you know. With a crazy, with with an admittedly an extremely innovative cutting-edge yes. screen technology that you you cannot buy anywhere else right now at this second. Well, but. Although but you can't buy it right now anyway. Other other manufacturers are looking at it yes. and saying, here's how I'm going to do it. And 
that's the part of the fold that I like. Not the fold itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're, you know, hot and cold. You can buy it. Nope, not anymore. <laughs> We're going to cancel you. Well, we might ship a few if of we, them. If we get them out, if we can come up with a new ship date by the end of the month, this is literally what their co-CEO said, which co-CEO, you're already in trouble. Uh, <laughs> their, their co-CEO said, if we can figure out a ship date by the end of the month, we won't cancel pre-orders. But if we can't, we will, but we're still going to ship it anyway because we fixed it. That tells that is such confidence. Yes, it tells you not. <laughs> it tells you nothing about what you're actually going to get or when you're going to get it. Yeah. But the point of that, the reason why I'm excited about the the Galaxy Fold, is um, that it is making people think differently about the form factor of a phone. Mm-hmm. I remember fondly the days of the Sidekick and the Voyager and the weird phone my daughter had that had this big honking you know, hole in the upper left corner so you could put a keychain through it, but it would flip up and it would do this, you know, phones were, there's actually an article I looked up that, you know, the seven ugliest phones, you know, back in the day. Oh, yeah. And some of them are like, oh, my gosh, that's a horror show. It's amazing. It's wonderful. The people thought creatively about what this communication device should look like. There's uh, Huawei came out with the same concept as a Google Fold, except that the screen was on the outside. Yeah. So instead of having to jam three screens, meaning the two inside screens and the one that's on the front like the of the... status screen, yeah. Right, of yeah. the front of the other one, which is basically another LED display. Instead of that, they put it on the outside, so you're only dealing with two screens. But there's another one from another manufacturer that actually folds up and down instead mm-hmm. of side to side. So I'm excited because hopefully it will allow designers to think creatively about what is this device in our pocket and how does the shape of it change the interaction with it change the way that we what we can do with it and that's exciting to me as a technology person well and i just realized that i've had had like kind of the the very first one of the first visions of this foldable phone i remember back in the day i think sprint put out a kinocera phone that was it was like one of the old um nokia communicators uh-huh. except it had two screens on it yes that you would open up and you could flip between two but there was no folding on the hinge. like there was no screen on the hinge right like the fold but i had it was the samsung alias 2 okay and you could open it as a flip phone or you could open it landscape and it had an e-ink like keypad yeah that would reconfigure depending on how you would opened it now of course, like, and it has like kind of the same promise, right? Where it can be, it's two basically uh, displays that can be changed to fit what you're doing. However, it was like a dumb phone, so of course it only just flipped between a key, you know a number pad and a QWERTY keyboard. So there was there was no innov- like, but the idea like that's what intrigued me about that device. It was like, oh, if I open up this terrible version of Sonic Two in this Java applet. Maybe there'll be a controller. <laughs> there never was. I was always sad when I but opened that up. But the promise of it. But the promise, the promise of, of it, it made was me spend U.S. dollars. Right. So that was that's the part of it. But again, I see these two stories, the Pixel 3a and the Fold, as being uh, on the same spectrum, but perhaps at different ends of the spectrum. And then in the middle, you've got Samsung 10, you know, that they released at the same time. That's interesting. They released the Google Fold and also the 10 mm-hmm. at the same time, which tells me already that... They weren't sure either who was going to buy the fold, or I. Th- I really do think, given the uh, seemingly the glaring technical flaw, that they really didn't. I don't know if they expected all that many people to buy or to pre-order them. We don't even know how many they pre-ordered. They said they sold out. They could have had three, and uh-huh. those sold out. Uh, but that I think they expected it, or expected it to be just a status symbol. You buy it so that you can be seen. Using it, people know you can drop that kind of money on a phone. Yes. And that's it for the first generation. They only sell, I don't know, 10,000 or what, you know, just a, like a very small number of these handsets and make it, then then you build, okay, it's a status symbol now. Now the second gen comes out, we'll sell a lot more So of it was them. the Tesla Roadster of phones. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And okay. much like the Tesla Roadster had all sorts of quality control problems. Right, but they're, they're <laughs> testing the waters and they're, they're letting basically users beta test. So just to be a little prescriptive, because mm-hmm. uh, in my day job, that's what I get to do as head geek is I get to be prescriptive and tell people, you know, you ought to do X or Y. I think that, you know, as you're shopping for phones, as you're looking for these compute devices, we are now at the point where you can ask yourself honestly, you know, rather than I must have the new hotness, mm-hmm. what are you doing with it? You know, what does that thing need to do for you? Um, you know, even camera resolution. Do I really, really need the greatest, bestest camera? Um, or can I live with last year's camera? I don't mean live with last year's phone. I'm just, no. you know, do I live with something that's slightly lower in terms of that? Do, do I need the fastest processor? Why? 
Do I need, um, you know, you need updates. You need the security. You need, I, I will say, again, as a tech person, you need those things. You, need, you can't have a phone that no longer gets updates, that well, no longer gets, And yeah. that to me is, you know, as someone, I, I know iOS devices sometimes get poo-pooed by people that uh, consider themselves uh, technical people or whatnot. Uh, but I, yes, for I me, do. Yeah, for me, it <laughs> comes down to I want to be able to download the latest update the day it comes out if I want to. I want to know that it's the security patches are going to be delivered. I don't have to wait for a carrier to validate that or to go through some or I, I'm on an unsupported version of it. And that was like my and, and the camera was at the time I bought it, you know, the best th like that was my decision making. It was like I want updates and I want a good camera. Right. Because you just had a baby. Yeah, and exactly. like, I was like, to, I, yes. I'm going to be taking all the pictures. Yes. Um. So and, and I feel like that's what like Google's like, wait a minute. Yeah. What if we offered it for half the price? Yeah. Yeah. And and so you can get these these less expensive devices because I don't think that we many case in many cases we need you know the latest and greatest. Now ask me in half an hour when we're done with the show like <laughs> which phone am I going to be getting? You know because I must have the toys. But for generally speaking, you have to decide where good enough is good enough. Yeah. Well, and. I think uh, I think we're gonna leave it uh, with that. We're approaching the end of our weekly. Oh my tech goodness! News. I know, uh, Leon. This has just been a whirlwind of intriguing conversation. Um, if people are interested in finding out more about you, what you're up to, um, things that you have written, where yes. should people check you out? So first of all, just a reminder: I'm a head geek at Solar Winds, and uh, you just have to look up those two words, and you'll find me. <laughs> and my other head. There's more than one. Head Geek. Um, but you can also find things that I've written at adatosystems.com. And I also run a podcast, a weekly podcast, called Technically Religious. It's a, a, a Jew, a Mormon, a Muslim, an evangelical Christian, an atheist. We get together, and we've all been in IT for decades, and we also have strong religious, moral, ethical outlooks. And so we talk about tech through the lens of our religious perspective. I approve. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, again, my name is uh, Rich Straffolino. We're going to be doing this uh, this summer. And at some point, I'm going to post this on uh, on a podcast feed somewhere. I Yay. haven't set that up yet uh, because I'm super coordinated. Uh, but my name is Rich Straffolino. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. I also write uh, for a website called gestaltit.com. You can check that out if you are into the enterprise IT stuff. Um, we do a podcast where we kind of debate uh, some IT premises uh, while we're on premises. And it gets, it's very complicated. Uh, so uh, Gestalt IT, if you want to check It's an inside that. joke. Yes. Yeah, premise, premises. It's, a, it's, an it's an inside joke that I have to explain to everyone because they just think I'm a moron. Yeah, try working for solar winds <laughs> that is neither solar nor wind. Okay, yeah. No, we, this is why we're friends. This is why we... So, uh, like I said, we'll be back here every uh, Monday at 1 o'clock Eastern. Uh, check us out uh, if you're listening online at wruw.org. Um, I'm trying to cross-pollinate all of these things. It's very yes. confusing. Uh, but we'll be back next week running down all of the tech news. Yeah. So I'm going to cue up some music here because that's how we're going to play ourselves out. And then you'll hear some announcements, maybe some music. And uh, But, Leon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This was and will always be a pleasure. Oh, and I forgot my sign-off. Have a super sparkly day, Leon. Oh, that's that's shiny. <laughs>